Hi, I'm Rob, and this is Dad Sofa, a podcast about the things that connect us. Whether it is a rained-off attempt at a trip to the pub, or string theory, a cycle to Cornwall, or a chat in the sea, we talk about the stuff of life, what makes us curious, the stuff that connects everything, the spaghetti of life. Come and join us. Get comfy. This is Dad Sofa. Where do I start with this man? I guess the best place is when I met him. I was working in Brighton and he was doing a book signing, which just happened to coincide with my lunch hour while I was working at the children's hospital. I couldn't resist and decided to spend my break queuing to see him. The book, of which there were many different titles he had written, was Black Beauty, according to Spike Milligan. My first Spike Milligan book was given to me by a mother of someone at my primary school. Not really a friend, but my mother and her were friendly. Mrs Elliot was the classic 60s person with flash colourful clothing, bouffant black hair, flares and cigarettes mounted on a shiny cigarette holder for smoking. It was rebellious to give someone a Spike Milligan book of poetry in those days, but I loved it. Even as a child I knew that this person was very different and I wondered why. Spike was born about 60 miles away from Pune in India, where my dad was stationed during the war. I would have known this area well because his father was in the military too. He was four years older than my dad but he became part of the movement that created the comedy associated with the UK. Monty Python was hugely influenced by the madness of Spike's humour, and it set the scene for so many other comedians, such as Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, and the team at Not the Nine O'Clock News, where Rowan Atkinson shot to stardom. As I grew up, I became interested in his time in the army, because he was my way of finding out what my dad had experienced, him not speaking of it, of course. I was shocked to find that Spike had spent time in mental institutions, and only discovered this because some of the things he wrote were signed off from the institute in which he was being treated. So it wasn't long before I bought his war books, and still have a box set of them with titles such as Adolf Hitler, My Part in His Downfall, Rommel, Gunner Who, Milligan was known as Gunner Milligan, Monty, His Part in My Victory, and when the war was over, I loved the title of his first post-war novel, Where Have All the Bullets Gone? If you read his books, they are an incredible piece of history, but from first person, and it describes the boredom, the different characters he met, including officers that he respected and lost, and his hospitalisation on mental grounds, following a very difficult time on the hillside one day. When out of boredom, all hell broke loose. His mantra was to find the humour in the tragic, but I learned that he knew a lot about history and music. He respected people, except those stupid oafs who he would soon put in their place. He clearly cheered up all those around him, even when he was feeling particularly sad himself. His poetry is particularly disarming, and there are two polar opposites that I'll read. A smile. Smiling is infectious. You catch it like the flu. When someone smiled at me today, I started smiling too. I passed around the corner, and someone saw my grin. When he smiled, I realised I'd passed it on to him. I thought about that smile, then I realised its worth. A single smile, just like mine, could travel round the earth. So if you feel a smile begin, don't leave it undetected. Let's start an epidemic quick and get the world infected. This upbeat humour is in such stark contrast to the following, which reveals the underlying angst from his very real experience. The Soldiers at Lauro Young are our dead, like babies they lie, the wombs they blessed once not healed dry, and yet, too soon, into each space, a cold earth falls on colder face. Quite still they lie, these fresh-cut reeds, Clutched in earth like winter seeds, but they will not bloom when called by spring to burst with leaf and blossoming. They sleep on 
in silent dust, as crosses rot and helmets rust. And so it was that he learned his trade, spent seven years in the army during the war, and while clearly a natural comedian, his passion was music. He played the trumpet and guitar, but could also play drums and saxophone. He was essentially a professional musician during the war, but had to be a part-time gunner, given to him as his main role. Very soon after leaving the army, at the end of the war, he entered the cloak-and-dagger world of entertainment, touring in Germany, Austria and Italy, but spending a lot of time in the UK musical entertainment business. It was during this creative period that he met an old friend from the army, and soon the goons were formed. I guess I was too late to really engage with the goons, which included Spike alongside Michael Benteen, Peter Sellers and his friend, Harry Seacombe. I was shocked to hear a story that Michael wanted Spike out of the outfit because he was untalented. If this was true, what a terrible misjudgment. Spike and Peter Sellers were the geniuses behind the goons, and were the two who went on to have the most successful comedic careers. I still don't really get the goons, other than some of the audios they did, where Eccles would view life from a very Spike-esque dimension. Having read all of his poems that I had on hand, I started really watching him on his comedy shows, the Q series. You just did not know what was coming next. Again, this was a series that was experimental and did not always hit the target, but I learned to respect the craft of comedy by watching it. The people who were involved with the Q comedies knew that his depression was cyclical, and on the way up, his comedic creativity would gradually improve. Someone I saw described the zenith at about 75% of the way up. As he reached the height of the manic phase, his comedy would become faster, more furious, and it would become pick and choose, and attempts at understanding what he was doing were thwarted, because the next thing would just come before you, before you could compute. An example of something that made it through shows a man in fine dress sitting down at a grand piano. Just as his hands are about to drop into the keys, the piano disappears, but is instantly replaced by a bathroom sink. The musician's hands go down into the bowl, and his face appears confused, combined with an uncertainty about what to do with his dangling hands, should he still attempt to tickle the keys, or wash his hands. As this thought process happens in the viewer's minds, Spike appears, instantly, lying on the ground in overalls, repairing the sink as though a plumber. The visual is just so original, and just plain funny. In Q5, there was a kind of running race, except in stop motion. The real people were just standing, without running, but kind of sliding around the track with excited commentary, legs not moving at all, but athletes floating forwards. The effect was genius. His children were treated to books, but not just the poetry. His tiny creations he would secrete at the bottom of the garden, impossibly tiny, with small writing, in an attempt to show his children that pixies were indeed living at the bottom of the garden. They would discover them and show them to him, and I do wonder how much this was an attempt at giving his children a childhood that he had lost through the war and being brought up between two of them. I think this may have led to him inventing the evil witch character, Bad Jelly. The name Bad Jelly is a perfect example of his humour, and the more I think of this simple joke, the more I smile about his way of thinking. Tragedy is part of the book that he wrote, and a link to Grimm's fairy tales is implicit. His own children became part of a family tragedy when his wife, Paddy, died from breast cancer at the age of 43. Spike had to tell his children that this was happening, and one of his daughters refused to believe it, citing the fact that this can't happen because she was only 11. Spike publicly said, How can I answer that? He was brave, but could also have been seen as a coward. He went on television and discussed mental illness in public when no one else would do so at that stage. He would say things that could easily be seen as a little wayward or out of control. He was in such a situation when he was given an award at the British Comedy Awards. 
The whole room stood giving him a standing ovation for his outstanding achievement award. He was quite frail at the time, and his words were, I was about to say it's about bloody time. He also said, I'm not going to thank anybody, because I did it all on my own. Then Jonathan Ross came forward and said that a big fan of his had not been able to make it this evening, but wanted to send a message. Prince Charles, our now king, had written a letter, and Jonathan read it out. As someone who grew up to the sounds of the goon show on the steam wireless, I must confess that I've been a lifelong fan of the participants in the show, and particularly Spike Milligan. Spike then cuts in and says, And just bear in mind the subject he's talking about is now a king, he says, the little grovelling bastard. Jonathan would have gone on to say that Spike's humour reduced him to helpless hysterics. It is a brand of humour that is gloriously and eccentrically British. But this did not come forth because the whole room broke down in laughter, and not just for a minute or so, but for some time on. Just think about that statement, his mother being the Queen, and 500 years ago such a statement may not have led so much to adulation, but more execution. Jonathan Ross does not read the rest of the statement, and just gives him the copy of the letter in its bound form. So going back to that book, Signing in Brighton, I thought about it, and how long it might take, but I had to go there. The queue was long, but I reckoned on an hour. I waited in the queue, and it was stressful because I knew I was going to be late back for work. This was, I felt, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and on getting into the store, there were books of his that you could pick up for signing. He was making everyone laugh, and as I got closer, the regularity of laughter just got louder. Someone five or six places ahead of me was very tall, probably nearly seven feet high. I'm six foot one, and he dwarfed me. I could hear Spike jibing him about basketball. As I got closer, I felt the pressure of speaking to this man rise. Finally, I got there, and in a rather understated way, he just smiled and asked me my name. I told him Rob, in an apologetic way. And then he said, you play rugby? I felt crushed because I knew rugby was a big thing in his younger life. His famous quote about rugby is as follows. Rugby is a game for big buggers. If you're not a big bugger, you get hurt. I wasn't a big bugger, but I was a fast bugger, and therefore I avoided the big buggers. I became even more apologetic and just said the truth. I wanted to play, but our school only did football. There was a brief pause while he collected his thoughts. One side of his mouth turned and he just said, I tried football once, but every time someone tackled me, I just got taken off on a stretcher. Everyone in the room roared with laughter. His vision of footballers, soccer players just falling over and feigning injury at the slightest contact. It didn't dawn on me until years later that he was actually paying me a compliment about my build. He saw me as a large adult, a big bugger with big shoulders. His pause was probably because I'd not come out with the response he expected. I now wish I'd told him I was a swimmer, but I often wonder what he would have said if I'd eagerly said yes to the rugby playing. I think I may have been the butt of the joke whatever I'd said. His humour came from spending a long time in the army, and the more I've learned about him, the more I realise he was not malevolent, but was a product of his time. His father was in the military, and so his time at primary school in Burma, he was called a white monkey and in old age would recall the Burmese for this term. But he said that it didn't really affect him in any way. Maybe it did, and more than he ever realised. He was a force of nature, and while many were writing lines each week, he would extend meetings by long periods of time, to the extent that his managers had to advise him to stop, because everything needed to be ready by Monday. But it must have been good, because Charlton Heston and Barbara Streisand were just a few of the many people that travelled just to see him. In the end, he passed away peacefully, but even in death, he didn't want to go out without having the final word. If you visit his grave, it has a statement engraved on the headstone in Gaelic, so very few people will ever be able to read it and understand it.
It simply says, I told you I was ill. <laughs>